Welcome to the Reverberations podcast. This series is curated and hosted by me, Zara Arshad, and made possible with funding and support generously provided by the Design History Society UK. Reverberations as an initiative was originally proposed in late 2018 as an events programme, a set of in-person conversations that would seek to address marginalisation, underrepresentation, and erasure in the UK's cultural and creative sectors. This group of talks was partly driven by my own harmful experiences of the fields in which I professionally practice, specifically museums, academia and design. While the podcast that you are currently listening to, a reincarnation of the aforementioned events programme, was developed throughout 2020, a year defined by COVID-19, the murder of George Floyd, and the subsequent heightened energy of the important Black Lives Matter campaign, in addition to new surges in anti-Asian hate. As these happenings and more have been taking place around me, I have doubted the value of public discussion, querying how can we move beyond lip service and help to enact meaningful change. The exchanges that I have had mostly during lockdown with the brilliant group of individuals who feature in this series offer glimpses into the possibilities and imaginings of how such change might be achieved, such as through collectively creating new systems, building networks of care and empathy, and thinking more carefully about whose voices we choose to amplify. The works, ideas and approaches briefly encapsulated here have greatly informed my own thinking. I hope these recordings will be similarly useful for you. Organised around three key themes, institutions, divergent models, and decolonising design and culture, season one of the podcast broadly focuses on history making, particularly in relation to design history and design studies. The conversations that feature implicitly reflect on how and where our histories have conventionally been told and who gets to tell them through considering the work and experiences of BIPOC peers and colleagues who have navigated, continue to navigate, and frequently resist institutional structures and frameworks in varying ways. Finally, I am joined by Rachel Minot, an artist, curator, and researcher. Rachel is currently Inclusion and Change Manager at the UK National Archives and Chair of the Decolonizing Guidance Working Group for the Museums Association. She has a rich curatorial and artistic portfolio, having previously worked at the Horniman Museum in Gardens, curating exhibitions like The Past Is Now, Birmingham and the British Empire in 2017, as well as exhibiting widely as an artist. So welcome, Rachel. I'm delighted to be speaking with you today and thank you so much for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to be here today. Thank you so much for having me, Zara. I'm really uh, looking forward to our conversation today. So I thought that we could start the conversation by talking a little bit about The Past Is Now. So the exhibition that you co-curated and that which was hosted by the Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery in 2017. So this show looked to explore and display stories of Birmingham and the British Empire and has almost become a model example, if you will, um, with regards to applying decolonial theory with curatorial practice. So could you perhaps speak a little bit about the curatorial directions that you employed for the exhibition, how, how these directions kind of manifested, and also how the exhibition was received by different audience groups? So um, the past is now, Birmingham the British Empire, was quite a seminal moment in my career. And while I, in, in reality, I did co-curate it, I was actually a research assistant. And the title co-curator was afforded to the external um, participants who had no affiliation with the museum, who took on curatorial role from outside. I took on the curatorial role from inside the organization, but as a research assistant. So. I've talked about this in, in other forms, but what kind of manifested was that there was a sort of insider voice, outside, outsider voice that was at play, that both had kind of activist energies that were inspired by 
decolonial theory that we were trying to apply to Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery. One of the ways that I tried to enact that in curatorial role was taking this role as the insider really upon myself as being the translator of what the systems were in place, how decisions were being made, and trying to create some transparency between what you see of a museum, which is a often really beautiful building with really perfect finished exhibitions that appear to kind of be these sorts of emblems of empire, you know, showcasing all its glory, but from the inside is really kind of struggling financially, trying to make decisions about relevance and audiences, and really hiding that disconnect between what the workers do and this idea of an institution like a museum. And so within the past is now, one of my my jobs was also kind of translating the frustrations, like explaining some of the frustrations that occur looking from the outside in, the system doesn't seem to be working for people. It doesn't seem to be opening up doors. And sometimes it is truly, you know, barriers based on marginalization and lots of kind of empirical hangovers. But sometimes it's just that actually the apartment is one person, the resources are like a thousand pounds. And the past is now wasn't necessarily that case because it was funded by the Arts Council England Changemakers Project and there was money put aside for it. But a lot of the money put aside was for salaries internally. So there was also still some kind of resource juggling that needed to occur. The biggest resource juggling that we had to um, manage with the past now was time. We had a really short timeline for that. And so one of my translation jobs was kind of explaining why we were making decisions in such quick succession. And yeah, explaining the process between them. Um, how we translated this the structure was that I did research on the kind of collection as a whole that was prompted by the external co-curators' questions and creative problem solving around what an exhibition, what a decolonial exhibition about Birmingham could look like that focused on empire. Um, so I took the kind of meetings that we had and I, I translated their thoughts and tried to apply it to the museum database, because the museum database is one of those really um, difficult structures to navigate as well. It's really hard to get external participants who haven't been trained to do searches in the the database to know what's being regurgitated, because often we don't have pictures, the language might be out of date, so it's hard to search for what you're specifically looking for. So it requires a lot of training or, or experience to kind of access it in its core without the kind of external search port that we give to users, which isn't a complete database because a complete database mm. is a mess. So, <laughs> so we give them like a neat database and then we try and fix the mess and then we put that out to the public. But yeah, so I translated what they were looking for to try and get a series of objects that might help tell the story that they wanted to tell. Presented that to the group they then tried to kind of whittle down the story. So we tried to then clump the objects together in the same way that we would normally do when we were creating a short list from a long list of objects within a museum curatorial process. Um, I went through and took pictures of all the objects on the short list to make sure that we could visualize them and, and get as much information as possible for them and printed them out so that we could put them in the physical space, get a sense of that kind of curatorial process. With the passes now, I did make the mistake of still kind of keeping things in Excel spreadsheets because the museum database really kind of downloads easily into spreadsheets. Almost all museum databases do, but very few people think in spreadsheets. So that was one of my biggest lessons from that exhibition. And when I did the co-curation process later, I printed out the images as A4, A5 images with text on the back that was just like, what is this? If it needed further kind of explanation. Once we grouped things together, we tried to figure out how we wanted to interpret the overall story. And so with the external co-curators, that's one of the things that we worked on with them was writing the panel text, which is the kind of the section narrative that people will engage with. That had uh, was a difficult process and it's, I've discussed it in other spaces, but what was difficult about that was mostly the idea of power that comes down to editing. So Content creation, idea generation is something that people of color are often brought in to do. Um, A lot of external participants to museums with or other cultural sectors that have um, marginalized experience often brought into projects to kind of say, like, what's the direction? What are the ideas? What's the creative spark? But when it does come to the editing or the final voice, they tend to be absented from that process. 
And that is something that we started to do. We basically asked them to start the interpretation off and then we would finish it. And when we gave them the finished version, you could see that we had really changed their voice. And that was something that caused a lot of friction. However, we did in the end realize that we were not prioritizing their voice and we tried to make moves that would allow their voice to be at the forefront and that our editing to become only about accessibility standards, whether or not people could understand the sentence, was it too long, did it need to be shortened, that sort of level of editing rather than, oh, this sounds better if we put the sentence first or if we change this word or can we say racist? Yeah, maybe we can say racist, but I don't feel comfortable using that term. You know, those sorts of micro edits that you didn't, you might not even notice you do when you go through, especially if you've been institutionalized. So that's why it's really important for me to frame the work that I do as no, acknowledging that I'm inside. I am institutionalized. And so it takes somebody who's not institutionalized to help me um, deliver these things as best as I can be, because I will subconsciously replicate a lot of the colonial constructs that were a part of my education and experience in the museum world and curation. I mean, and that's, that rings true, you know, for so many of us that work both within institutions and outside of them, kind of working within those frameworks and then trying to unlearn that, um, I think is a process that at least I as a researcher am constantly battling with. And you touched, you know, on this idea of terminology using words like racist. And it's something that I do want to come back to perhaps a little later in the conversation. But just kind of coming back to your description of the interpretation process, what would you have changed around that process? And were there other elements within the exhibition curating that upon kind of reflecting in hindsight that you would also kind of maybe modify how you had done things or changed your approach? I think the main thing that I would change in regards to that project was that while it was an experimental project, so we didn't necessarily know how it was going to function because it was the first time we were doing a lot of things, I think we could have been a lot more transparent upfront about what it might have been and more flexible than if it was more labor than was initially asked for. So if we realize that it would be so heavily dependent on the expertise and energy of these external participants, we should have had the budget flexibility to pay them, remunerate them, but also to be as upfront as possible about the fact that this was maybe like a flexible contract or that things would be expanding. And there weren't necessarily things that we, that the organization demanded of the external participants. It was the nature of the project, the energy that it required. Nobody enters into a decolonial experiment half-heartedly, really. Mm -hmm. So we knew that we were getting people with a lot of energy, passion this is like felt at the time for me as well like an opportunity we weren't maybe never going to get again if we didn't do it right and that sort of kind of set up an energy and the attention we end up getting on it would have naturally drawn in more time and energy so we should have been a bit more we should have been cognizant that that would have happened and then had more kind of awareness of the roles that we had that the co-curators were going to be asked to play you know or give them choices of what they wanted to focus on. So the space was a flexible space that we were creating for feedback mechanisms because the gallery itself was going to be a testing gallery for Birmingham Museums going forward. And it was going to outlive the project. But with the co-curation, we kind of combined the two. So the co-curators are also being asked to kind of feedback on the mechanisms of the flexible display that really didn't necessarily need to fit with this decolonial element. If they hadn't been involved in it, they may, that it may have been something that had been quite disruptive in the, in the end. But really, we should have had the designers working with the co-curators on the graphic design elements and the bill that would have been specifically for the exhibition, and then the flexible display elements that were for the gallery separated out to make those things clearer as well. And then I think we talked about decolonizing the museum and the systems. And the way that the past has now sort of happened was that we attempted decolonial practice within a small part of museum practice. 
so in co-curation. And we were aware that it would have some impact on other systems, or we were hopeful that it would kind of create a roadmap for more kind of decolonial practice. But in reality, when you engage in decolonial practice in, in heritage organizations, you bump up against the finance systems, around HR systems, how to you know get someone as a supplier, how to pay people, but also like who supplies what, who's doing the work can you get them get approval for new suppliers if that's an essential part of the project and those kind of elements that needed more people from more departments to be on board Mm. with for it to have been a decolonizing of the museum so in the end it advertised and it had a high ambition which raised expectations that it could never it would never have been able to meet so at the start i think we talked about it as decolonizing the museum And in the end, I think we talked about it as an experiment in decolonial practice, because that's what it was. It was such a small period of time that it could only be a slice of what was to come. And there's a lot of talk about what was the legacy of the project. And for Birmingham Museum, I know that there's been a huge legacy internally in terms of practice, the way that um, exhibitions are thought of, questions that are asked. And I know that the labels themselves, they still exist and they've now been put into the permanent gallery. I made sure that they, all of the um, information the co-curators wrote, all their um, interpretation went onto the collections database and that um, the co-curators were listed as experts um, on the database so that it wasn't seen as an opinion. It was seen as a part of these objects history now within the museum. So there are legacy elements of it, but it also needs to build. It needs to be the next kind of decolonial experiment, the next decolonial structuredness, next system kind of in place and upskilling and, you know, confidence building around this work that um, is an ongoing element of cultural change, which we will never really know how much that works unless people stay in the organization, are articulate about their change, that sort of thing. And I've left, so I, I obviously don't have an intimate knowledge of how the museum is doing now. I'm aware that a lot of the co-curators, and I apologize for referring to them in, as a homogenized group at the moment, but it's just a bit simpler for me right now. I know that a lot of them have done bigger, better things and have really complicated relationships to the way that the museum still speaks about the exhibition and still profits through legacy um, and reputation based on their work without there having been a full reconciliation of all of the kind of difficulties of what went on throughout the process. Yeah, I mean, it's, I feel like these situations where you have, you know, a network of people that are willing to kind of collaborate with one another and really want to create something meaningful um, and powerful but kind of sitting within those institutional structures that you're so bound by, I think it is a difficult thing to negotiate for everybody that's involved. And it's certainly been my own personal experience as well. Yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily think I can kind of offer any solutions or (laughs) exemplary ways of navigating that, but it just kind of struck me that my experiences resonate with much of what you're describing. And I definitely don't want to speak for the other, anybody else who's involved in the project because I can't, I can only speak from my own experiences of it. But I'm sort of comforted by the fact that it was difficult because if decolonizing was easy, why hadn't we done it before? So yeah, exactly. there is an element of, it should be hard. This is a difficult thing. We're trying to undo years of mental, physical trauma that impacts people today that costs many people their lives that changes the way we see ourselves and see other people and we understand belonging the shape of the world trade (laughs) aid many things um so yeah it constantly expands as well as you look at it further and further Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you mention trauma, but you know, there is also an element of healing and reconciliation that should perhaps take place. And so this kind of leads me into my next question, because alongside your curatorial work, you have also actively maintained your artistic practice. And of course, those strands intersect, they're not separate to one another. Um, But from your perspective, what 
has been or what is the role of creativity in enabling that healing, in enabling that reconciliation um, in terms of decolonizing? So for me, uh, creativity has to be at the heart of the decolonial exercise. And that's because if we're trying to change the world, we'll need to creatively reimagine our future together. And that is not an easy task to do. I think it's something that requires a rebalancing of priorities from what I deem to be quite a masculinized, patriarchal focus on logic, reason, like very enlightenment thinking and power over sort of feeling connection and creation, which feels quite feminine, not necessarily male, female, kind of arbitrary gender binaries, but I like to think of it as quite a female energy, feminine energy. And I think create Activity and artistic practice is one of those mediums that is really driven by processing feelings and trying to make sense of how things you are experiencing might be universal in some way or create connections in some way. And a lot of kind of creative practice involves this like natural collaboration, but also critical engagement. Like if you're making art and people aren't going to criticize it, you're not really engaging in kind of the full spectrum of the kind of art world. You sort of create something and you ask people to kind of say, what's good, what's not working, what bit resonates with you, which bit doesn't. And that doesn't necessarily change the artwork, but it changes the way that you expect people to respond to your outputs. And I think heritage organizations often shy away from some of that critical engagement that is essential to kind of creation because it's feedback. And, you know, if someone criticizes something that you feel really passionate about, you know a bit better what you feel about the thing you've made. If someone criticizes something and you go, actually, you've got a point, then you know a little bit about where you have leeways. And, and so that, that whole creative process for me is really essential first for our rigor on understanding where our ethics and values meet practical reality, but also this idea of processing feelings, processing whether, you know, it's a positive emotion, you know, not necessarily positive emotion, but, you know, whether it's joy or pain or grief or a mixture of the three, that like creativity does that better than many other forms do. And I found that for me, what I've been invited to do a lot of times is talk about theory, to think a little bit about my practice. So really to create nonfiction writing and prose particularly. And recently I've sort of rejected that format a bit and I've started to introduce poetry into my prose or creatively imagine these conversations I'm having with people through writing or presentation as conversations I'm having in real life, like the conversations I might have with my best friend or my grandmother or my ancestors that I never met or people who just walk the same path as me, which has always been my art practice. It's always been sort of creatively reimagining another perspective on um, than the one I hold or the one that I'm reading. And I find that's quite useful, but also quite fun. And I think if decolonial practice doesn't have any fun in it, then it's draining, it's painful, it's unsustainable. And also it misses a part of what you're trying to achieve. You're trying to achieve a space of belonging for more people by taking away the pain of marginalization, erasure, um, you know, physical harm. And, you know, one of the ways that I've seen most people deal with trauma has been through humor. I've never really seen people survive something very difficult that's occurred in their life without some sort of dark humor being in interjected into this. And it's something I was always raised with. Jamaicans have a saying, you know, tech serious thing, make joke. Um, because they're just always laughing about really, really serious stuff. You know, I learned about the history of slavery from when I was a child, but through sort of like mocking humor, through, you know, the masquerade that enslaved pe persons used to mock the colonizers at the time, the humor was always present. It was present during the moments of trauma. And in dealing with that inherited trauma, it also needs to be present. And when we just look at the documentation, the numbers, this is the horrific details of this colonial trauma. 
that's really difficult. But when you look at the creative elements, if you look at stuff like, you know, John Kuno in Jamaica or, or other kind of art forms that were created at the time or other ways that people deal with death and mourning now in creative ways, it has a different energy. It creates a different light in your body movement. You know, laughter is a different form of breathing that we don't do in any other way. And I just think those are all essential parts of first getting through this, but also how we create the sense of belonging in the end. It's really interesting as you were talking, you know, about this approach to humor, my experience of it in a museum context has almost been the opposite, whereby humor has been used almost to degrade. So, you know, this thing like banter is like Mm. another example. Um, So I've been in situations, for example, where someone has been quite racist, but then laughs it off. And so that kind of took me aback and I wasn't Mm. quite so sure how to process that. Um, But kind of coming back to your idea of creativity and imagining, you know, alternative futures collectively, that is something that, again, kind of really resonates with how I'm hoping to practice, if not already. But I think it's it's also been a mechanism, I suppose, through which I've had to handle these situations as well myself. You know, I've been, for example, in meetings, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but I've been in meetings where I haven't been very vocal just because I don't feel like those meetings set up an environment for for someone like me to partake. And that's often actually come down at me in my experience, often from white cis men who have just kind of said, well, you don't have the confidence, you need to speak more, you need to be more confident. And I always kind of took that back towards me that that was a reflection of my behavior but actually I've now kind of been turning that around you know using various different creative means to kind of understand all of this and kind of turning that around and thinking well actually no it wasn't that I wasn't confident it was more that you didn't create that environment for me to feel welcomed. So I don't have the experience of not speaking but that's because I have almost like an inability to not speak. And it's a it's a problem for me. So I've been in those situations where the room is absolutely hostile and I am red. I can feel it like I'm on fire because I'm so emotionally charged by the hostility in the room that I start speaking, but in a completely like disembodied way. Like I would not tell you, couldn't tell you what I've said, but I know I've said something that's been probably deemed unprofessional, but it's definitely been sort of mad. And I've had those places where I've tried to shut myself up it's just, it, it's almost a physical problem for me to, to be quiet in spaces, but that's just a different personality um, or a type of communicating methods. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's interesting the thing you say about humor, because it is obviously, as with all sorts of communication and language about power and power dynamics at play. I suppose I focus in on humor because part of my practice in the decolonial sense is also to when I'm thinking about who's doing the action I'm talking about, it's very rarely white cis men. <laughs> but obviously, when we're talking about spaces with power that are held primarily by white cis men, that is sort of very important to understand the different contexts there. For mm. me, the perfect decolonial environment would be one that is full of like that ruckus laughter you get of those teenage girls who are like making connections, but being really irreverent in a museum space. That's sort of what I want. The sort of space that you'd normally see like older, typical museum users kind of touching at. I sort of just want that to be the norm. I want like loud spaces of irreverence. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm totally with you there. Um, But I'm almost coming back full circle with this podcast series because the first set that we put together really kind of centered on institutions um, and looking at these structural frameworks and instigating change within them, particularly at policy level. And so one question that I wanted to ask you was that, in your opinion, is policy change the way to structural change, firstly? 
And then I kind of want to come back to something that you touched on very briefly just now, which was the, the use of different terminology. We also kind of mentioned it earlier on in the podcast. So decolonial practice is, a, is about structural change. It's about cultural change. It's about changing who has power, who's in the room, who's represented, things that we consider standardized, all of that being, being challenged, changed and treated in a way that allows um, and celebrates different opinions, different experiences, um, different perspectives. For me, it has to, there has to be policy involved to start the change, start the process, because I think policy is what stops the process at the moment. I don't think it's the answer in the end, but I think it's an essential element to the work. For people who don't understand what's going on, who don't feel confident in it, or who don't feel as though there is a a need or a relevance of this work to their work. So that's what policy change can do. It can really set targets so that people know that they have to hit certain targets to be able to achieve funding, you know, that this is actually about their, their business sustainability, that they need to have um, certain levels of training and experience that means that they're meeting a minimum criteria of upscaling and engaging. However, these are all basically this idea of kind of changing what the minimum standard is. And it's mandated change, which can be really difficult because a lot of people will resist mandated change. So even if they do the training or they hit the targets, they will resist the kind of cultural, theoretical, critical engagement And they will fundamentally be the same, just do the things that they need to do to get by. And so policy change is only going to be successful if it takes people on a journey from zero upwards. It can be really difficult if you're working within a system and you are operating at a much higher kind of emotional register around this work or just that you've been in the conversation for a long time and you really don't want to go back to zero. That can be really frustrating The answer will be kind of scalable policy changes or like a development process and journey so that people can go from zero, have some guidance. They have access to people who are willing and consenting to give their emotional labor to help someone understand a little bit more about the moral, ethical justice reasons behind these changes, not just the business cases, and kind of take them through some of the steps that are about their own prejudices, their own fears, their own protective instinct around their territory or their expertise or their piece of the pie. Because that's one of the biggest challenges with all kind of equity policies is that if we understand and acknowledge that the world is not made up of infinite resources, equity means that some people have to give up some of the things that they have so other people can have more. And that is um, really difficult for a lot of people to emotionally understand, especially if their perception of themselves is already as an ally or as a victim. And so policy change has to be cognizant of that and has to be cognizant of the people who already have nothing and are actually victimized and are at a different level of emotional understanding of this. That being said, there are many people who experience marginalization who don't theorize it in this way and also need to be taken on the journey to understand what it is they're going through. I know that a lot of people who are engaging in decolonial practice are in the process of doing a lot of unlearning themselves of the, you know, some of the internal voices we have in our head. And it can be really difficult, especially when you kind of go back home and your family are kind of still perpetuating like colonial things. And you're like, you need to know better because this, you're kind of doing this to yourself and you're doing it to me and it's not fair right, 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 <laughs> you, right. you get into those like arguments with your mom and she tells you here needs to be straight um you know that sort of <laughs> those micro things that are part of the power structure that means that it doesn't need to sit centralized people have like taken it into their own bodies they pass it down in their own families they defend the structures that cause their, themselves and their loved ones pains I've sort of lost my train of thought there I kind of got carried away when I started thinking about my family <laughs> <laughs> we had like we quite do. a like infamous like <laughs> argument in my family on heteronormativity in Jamaica and everyone was just like what is this word why are you bringing this to Christmas and I'm like because you're doing it 
Yeah, I mean, this this all sounds very, very familiar, I have to say. I think, you know, in my family, so I'm of South Asian heritage, um, having fair skin has always been an aim. Yeah, ideas around sexuality, what you should be doing with your life as a woman. And especially for me, you know, I'm the oldest out of my generation, so to speak. So <laughs> I think this it all sounds very, very familiar, especially the arguments. <laughs> and like that sort of stuff will never be fixed by policy change. That's like, a, that's generational changes. Um, and yeah. sometimes we won't be able to fix some of the generational changes that occur in a work environment because they aren't our mums or aunties or anything. We can't really kind of cuss them out. You sort of have to be professional in the professional spaces and you can try and mandate upskilling, training, and that sort of thing. But unless someone commits to that cultural change, it, it, it will often not really do much, which is a bit sad and frustrating. So for me to answer the question, policy change is a very important element of it, but in no way can it solve any of these issues on its own. And for me, the only solution I've really found is these kind of real conversations that you create spaces where people come with whatever language they have, you know, might not have the right terminology for the thing they want to discuss. They may have outdated terminology they're not kept up with, but their intentions are good or they're curious. And it does require a lot of goodwill. And sometimes, you know, you don't have the energy to spend on taking someone on a journey. And that's absolutely fine. You know, self-care is an important element of this, especially if you're a part of a community that's very poorly valued by the rest of society. Self-care, um, as Audre Lorde says, is radical. You know, it's about, you know, valuing yourself when other people aren't valuing you. But at the same time, some people won't get there on their own. So they do need those with goodwill, generosity and energy to spare <laughs> to take some of those hits, to work on the inside within these systems, to kind of explain the complicated rather than be exasperated by someone who doesn't understand something that's complicated. You've mentioned this idea around carving spaces out for these kinds of conversations. And of course, you're involved in a group called Museum Detox. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the group and also more so about the work that you do with this group? Museum Detox was started long before I, I joined and also has a steering group that's a lot more involved than I am. But it's essentially a network for people of colour who work within museums or have worked within museums and are still tangentially like engaged to come together to support one another. And the initial impetus was this idea to create a space where you were no longer like the only person of colour in the room, but you were one of many who shared similar experiences of operating in heritage organisations as a person of colour in a predominantly white space. And that can be kind of really tricky space to navigate and having people who have shared experiences of that is really a relief. I mean, the feeling of, of not being the only person in any sort of marginalized identity is something that a lot of people have celebrated for years. You know, networks, staff networks are often seen as some of the solutions to these questions. It means that you can have a lot more complicated conversations around really difficult topics or nebulous experiences you know, you can have a whole conversation in a look, right? Like someone could say something and you guys give each other a look and you're like, oh, I understand the I see you look. Even when they're not in the network, they get the I see you nod around conferences is like the most, like, it gives me a lot of energy when I go to, to museum co conferences and you just kind of see other people and there's like a nod, like, I see you here. Um, come see me later if you need me. And this is what detox does well. It sort of breaks down all of those like, false professionalisms and it's hugs it's raucous laughter the things that I that re-energize you and we like talk about each other's practices so we upskill each other in terms of this is how it works at you know my organization this is how it works in my discipline so if you're engaging in the conversations you can really learn but mostly you can re-energize from those kind of spaces too you don't have to be anything else you don't have to be put your first your best foot forward because this isn't necessarily your this isn't a network for networking. It's a network for care. In many ways, it's become a lot of other things since that, that journey. Like there's a lot of attention on detox in the larger sector and hopes that, that detox is, is something that can be an active agent for change. And, you know, the conversations that come out of, of the official detox social media and the steering groups 
have really geared more towards changing the organization. But for me, what it always has been is the space for care and conversation and recharging, which it still absolutely is. Even throughout the pandemic, we've been having kind of Zoom catch-ups and we'll talk about, you know, really devastating events, you know, um, that have gone on in this last year. We've tried to process it. We've tried to process conversations around colorism and how it is still perpetuated within detox itself. Having those real difficult and complicated conversations that it's hard to engage in. When the conversation's at zero, if you start to bring in things like colorism, it can be really difficult because it can often be used as a sort of justification being like, oh, well, you know, we don't really have a problem because your community has this colorism problem um, and like sort of separated out because the starting point is low. Whereas um, it's an essential conversation that needs to happen. And so it needs to happen in spaces where you're not starting from zero. People understand that there is a problem that we're dealing with, with racism in a systematic way. And also that is perpetuated within our own communities, especially when we're homogenized into things like BAME or people of color that don't take into account anti-Blackness or, you know, colorism, shadism, however you want to call it from whichever background you have, you know, the elitism that's also in play because of class, wealth, power, education, that we all need to address in a decolonial space, but we have to have those conversations with ourselves too, um, without the necessarily the lens of external people watching that conversation unfold, um, who might not necessarily be ready to be a part of it. That makes sense. The space for that conversation to happen. Yeah, no, sure. And I think maybe this is actually a good point to kind of come back to the point that I wanted to raise around language. So specifically using the word decolonization, for example, versus anti-racist, anti-racism. Can you perhaps address the subtle differences between the two and perhaps more importantly, how terminology actually affects the kinds of conversations that we have? Yeah, I'm not a linguist, so I don't think that I have the correct definitions of these terms. But I think in practice, when I see anti-racism being championed versus decolonizing, I see that anti-racism really does focus in on race and ethnicity as a specific issue rather than necessarily an intersectional issue, but also that it often centers racism. And that's often because we know that race is a social construct, but racism is real. And so if you're talking about anti-racism, you need to center racism because you need to undo it. So what that means is, you know, there'll be like a stereotype that is um, talked about at like the heart. And then it will be like people will contradict it or talk about the logic or talk about the root of it. And that's anti-racism work. It's sort of saying like, this is your racism and this is why it's bad. And that is really important for people who don't understand that some things that they're doing might be perpetuating racial discrimination. Um, And it can be really essential when we're talking about systems that are racist that need to be, you know, dealt with through this anti-racist lens, because you need to talk about this is the effect of racism. So you do absolutely need to center racism. However, because I'm so, (laughs) I'm so obsessed with healing and reconciliation and that sort of emotions emotional journey that a person who has been marginalized goes through. I know that I don't often want racism to be centralized when I'm learning about myself or my family or my culture. I would like to understand more about it beyond the dynamic of this is the racist idea and this is how it's wrong. I'd be more interested in kind of saying, you know, thematically, we're going to explore love, for example, as an idea And we're going to put in lots of different perspectives, lots of different histories around love. We're going to talk about platonic love, familial love, romantic love, love that's non-monogamous, that's cross-cultural, cross-generational, the love you may have for inanimate things like plants or, I mean, plants are living things, but, you know, that sort of thing. So for me, decolonizing is more of that. It's a decentralizing of colonial constructs and racism is a colonial construct. So While anti-racism is important within decolonial work, I feel something that is decolonial wouldn't be centering the pain. It would acknowledge pain, but it would be going through kind of the spectrum of emotion that is true to reality. You know, anger, joy, love, longing, 
those sorts of things that feel a lot more familiar, especially if you don't have an academic background in a lot of this stuff. You might want to talk about like the refugee experience through this experience of loss, of longing, of hope, of love, rather than say, you know, people think of refugees in this way because of the media. So the latter, I would say, would be like an anti-racist way. And the other one would be more of a decolonial um, look at the refugee experience. And it would be talking about different reasons why people might move um, in a forced way and what drives them. So it'd be also more subject driven rather than looking at everyone but them. You know, when you're looking at kind of racism, you're sort of looking at how people perceive someone rather than how someone is experiencing the world or might experience the world. And so decolonial practice also really invites that multivocality because it's asking people to say, you know, this is my experience or this is what I wanted. And I mean, one of my favorite examples of decolonial work is music, because I think it does that really well in that music will reference racism and it will talk about the systems of oppression, particularly like reggae music. But it won't be about the perception of the racist on them. If it is, that's like a that's something that's mentioned, but it's not the center. The center is like the want, the pursuit of freedom, the kind of the love of their country or their ancestors or their God, or that is more centralized than, uh, you know, you don't see me as a human. If it is that, you know, you don't perceive me as a human, that's then kind of taken in of, but I am, and this is who I am, and I'm fighting for you. And so it's still driven by something else. It's not centralizing mm. that racism. I don't know if I'm being articulate enough, but that's sort of how I think about the two is different. Of course, decolonizing means different things to different people in different contexts. I suppose the question that I wanted to ask you was, where do we go from here? Though we might not necessarily be able to decolonize institutions, how do we create meaningful decolonial practices that impact our fields, that could impact the culture and creative sectors more broadly in the long term? What tools and networks do we build moving forward? Is it kind of expanding on the activities of groups like Detox? How do we kind of scale up these ideas around love? Um, yeah, what are your thoughts kind of around that? So one of the reasons that I don't think that museums can be decolonized really is because I think the pursuit of decolonizing the museum feels finite in that kind of idea of someday we will be done. And whilst I'm hopeful that someday the museum won't be a colonial machine in the way that it is, I don't think that pursuing a decolonized museum is actually what we want. I think we want decolonial practice, decolonial thinking to be embedded. We want to, you know, decolonize our minds. And that means learning from each other, talking to each other, being more creative, more more prepared to have critical conversations, to feel a little bit less stable all the time, you know, that you're in a conversation that you know the outcome is or that someone is friendly to you and that you're ready to kind of debate thought but also be ready to change your thought with through the bait. So remembering that we're not projecting ideas at each other, that we're engaging in conversations with one another and not sort of internalize these dichotomies that say, we will never come together. We will never agree. This person is totally opposite to me. This person is X there. Maybe they're the villain and I'm the victim. Those can be really easy for us to fall into, particularly with a lot of the isolation that we're facing right now with COVID and a lot of the algorithms that are in place that keep us in kind of isolated bubbles and also the way that stories are reported and shared or turned into dramas you know when the when people do fake look at the culture wars around decolonizing it's very dramatized what we presume is happening because they're reacting to certain words so the way forward is to kind of not run away from these conversations, but to engage with them, to understand that even if someone is critically engaging or that they are engaging, and actually that person who's critically engaging right now probably otherwise would never engage in any shape or form in this, this conversation. But to do that, we do need to center care because that is a difficult draining process. So I, I do think we're able to end on care because I think you will know when you need to 
to recharge, that it's not that you're recharging at work. You're recharging with people that you love. You're recharging with things that you love. You're eating great food. You're walking in nature. You're listening to music that, you know, you like. You're, you know, doing something creative or, you know, consuming something creative. And you're taking care of yourself and you're taking care of your community. But at the same time, you're not isolating yourself within your community. You're not saying that the, the colonial constructs of one and we're just going to segregate ourselves into those who agree with us. You're saying, I'm going to engage in, with this, but I'm also going to value me and I'm going to fight for my value and I'm going to fight for other people's values. I'm going to, you know, champion remuneration of people who have would otherwise ask be having their labor be paid for, for free. I'll do it for myself because I'm also championing the people that come after me, you know? I'm asking for pay for my labor because it will set a precedent that means that other people will be paid for their labor and that sort of thing. So understanding that taking care of yourself and creating a value for yourself also has systematic repercussions, sets precedents for behavior, challenges systems that otherwise go uncriticized. So yeah, I think that's that would be me. That's my kind of trying to bring it back around to care because I do think it's essential and also if we do centralize care, we do challenge ourselves to make sure that we don't replicate exploitive um, consumption of other people's time, energy, emotions, and that sort of thing. Or if we do, we understand exchange in a more beneficial way. You know, not everybody has the capacity to pay people for their time. But if you are understanding that someone's time is valuable and could be valued monetarily, you also understand that your exchanges should be exchanges, not consumption and that does change people's mindset so yeah I think the way forward is individuals changing their practice which will change systems yeah taking care of yourself and others <laughs> and I yeah I think I mean that's such a powerful note to end on I think to to wrap the conversation up with just caring more about how we engage with others with our work with any kind of practice that we might be involved in and so to that end, I'd like to thank you so much, Rachel, for being so generous, um, you know, with how you've responded to me this evening, for your thoughts, your contribution and your energy. It's been an absolute delight. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. If you have enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform it is that you use to access your podcasts. This will help other listeners to find us. With special thanks to Davinia Gregory, Ellie Michaela Young and Mega Rajguru for their continued support and guidance. Jenna Alsop for editing season one of the Reverberations podcast and Claire O'Mahony, chair of the UK Design History Society for championing this work. <laughs>